This is the Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with new and archive interviews from the Probabilities and Bookwaves Artwaves programs on KPFA-FM and Pacifica Syndication. Today, Walter Mosley is one of America's leading authors. He is best known for a series of mystery novels featuring the characters of Easy Rawlins and Mouse, which now number 15 books. There are 17 novels and other series, 16 other novels, a collection of short stories, six works of nonfiction, plus screenplays, teleplays, and graphic novels. But on October 25, 1992, he was at the beginning of his career when my late Probabilities co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I spoke with Walter Mosley in the KPFA studios about his then-latest Easy Rollins novel, White Butterfly. It was his third book and the third in the series, following Devil in a Blue Dress and a Red Death. Mr. Mosley is, insofar as I know, one of the few black writers writing mysteries. Why is that? I think there's six of us right now, though four of them started since I did three years ago. There's a couple of reasons. Most black intellectuals who go toward writing are writing more against social tides, which, you know, have so formed their intellectual life. And that's become kind of a mode in, in, uh, in black writing. And also, I think there's been some resistance from the publishing industry in general in accepting black writers any place outside of those social or exploitation kind of uh, books. There were black thriller writers and mystery writers early on, Chester Himes, for one. For one, who's the other? Who's, <laughs> for one, who's who's the That's other? Right, you know Chester Himes, yeah, and then there was another guy in the uh, Renaissance. I forgot his name, the Harlem Renaissance, who uh, oh, wrote. Oh, we were wrote talking one. about his book recently, The Conjure Man Dies. The Conjure Man Dies. There have been these two authors, Chester Himes and the author of The Conjure Man Dies. What brought you to write mysteries, and where did you succeed when the others didn't get there? Well, I think there's a, it's a change in the time. A lot of people are making new inroads, Terry McMillan, the most obvious example. But what happened was me, I wrote a book called Gone Fishing, which was a book with the characters from Devil in a Blue Dress, Easy and Mouse. They were younger, in their late teens, early 20s, in the Deep South, uh, on a mission. Mouse has stolen a car, gotten Easy to drive it, tricked Easy into driving it. And they're driving it to this mythical swamp town called Pariah, where Mouse intends to murder his stepfather, but Easy doesn't know it. Easy, while he's driving Mouse, is remembering his own father and dreaming about his own father. And so what you have is uh, two young men on, on... on similar but very different roads, and it's a kind of a psychological novel. I sent this book to 15 agents. 15 agents said, well, it's very good writing. We really like it, but who would read such a book? So then what happened? You decided to continue the characters with Devil in a Blue Dress? Well, I put it away, and I read... One of my favorite movies is The Third Man, and I was reading the novel. I found the novel in an old bookstore, and in the beginning, Graham Greene says... He was hired to write the screenplay, and he decided he would just kick off a novel to figure out what the screenplay would be. I was so impressed by this. I set up the same kind of structure for myself. I said, I'm just going to have a good time. I'm going to write a novel for nothing in particular uh, except to write a screenplay. And, of course, after I was a chapter into the novel, I completely forgotten the screenplay, and Devil in a Blue Dress came out. Were you intending to be uh, for this to be a series? 
from the time I wrote the first book, I wanted to write a series of books about these characters. So, yes, but I didn't intend for it to be a mystery series. That just happened. Dick Lupoff. Is there any chance that uh, Gone Fishing will ever surface? Oh, yeah, definitely. When I get the time to put it together, I think now I'm at a place in my career where people are interested in it, so I could do that. For the sake of our listeners who haven't read uh, any of these three books, Devil in a Blue Dress, Red Death, and White Butterfly, uh, could you give us a brief sketch of who is Easy Rollins and who is Mouse, and what is their relationship? Easy Rollins is a young man or starts off as a young man from the South who was a victim, basically, of Jim Crow, who goes to war and realizes that the differences he thought there were between whites and blacks were non-existent. They were imposed by a white structure. This, pardon me. This is World War II. World War II. Yes. When he returns to the South, he can't live there, and he leaves. He goes to California where there's opportunity and less oppression. But he is of a turn of mind where he stands up for himself at times where it won't keep him in his job. So he loses a job. He doesn't know what to do, how to pay the, his mortgage. And he becomes not a detective, but a guy who does favors for people. And uh, that's how he be enters into this detective mode. On the other hand, you have Mouse, which is his friend from Texas also, who is a sociopath, but a very lovable sociopath. He loves himself. He stands up for himself. And he's the kind of man, kind of black man, who is unafraid, which is very rare in Easy's life because most black people live by fear. The, the idea of living in America, I mean, you're afraid of, you know, people are going to come and take you away from your house. You're afraid of the police. You're afraid of the government. Uh, that fear might come out as anger or violence, but it's still a fear-driven life, whereas Mouse is not afraid at all. There are those who have said uh, in the Robert B. Parker series that Hawk is the dark side of Spencer. <laughs> is Mouse the dark side of Easy? No. Mouse, Easy and Mouse are both important representations in the community that I'm talking about. They're very good friends, but they're not two sides of a coin. Um, Easy is a very uh, moral and intelligent man who is always questioning his actions. Mouse is a different kind of person completely. Mouse, if, you know, somebody says, uh, well, you know, that guy was bothering me. I said, well, what's his address? You know, I'll go kill him. That's the way Mouse is. And he's necessary not only for Easy, but for a whole group of black people who came up and had to realize that they had to stand up for themselves and fight. Uh, so I wouldn't say that he's the dark side. I, I don't like that because what it does is it limits characterization to say that, that one character is the dark side of another. If Mouse is, is a likable sociopath, which hmm. as a reader... Uh, I, I, I have to say that, uh, yes, I got the same feeling. Uh, he's, a, he's the kind of guy that, that I almost feel as if I'd like to hang out with, and yet I would be scared because you look at him sideways, and he could just totally lose it. Easy's relationship with Mouse is, is what I'm the most interested in. Easy knows that Mouse would kill him if the occasion arose, if there was some reason for for Mouse to do that. But at the same time, Mouse is important to Easy's life. You wouldn't want to be a friend with somebody like Mouse unless you needed somebody with that kind of crazy violence backing them up. And that's who Mouse is. I wonder now about the, the likable sociopath as an archetype. And in recent popular media, the most obvious one is Hannibal Lecter. 
sociopath is putting it very mildly <coughs> for him. But the kind of person who is clearly intelligent may be somewhat manipulative. Um, you get over into serial killer Ted Bundy types. Very dangerous, very violent people. What is the appeal there? Why do we like people like this? Well, Hannibal Lecter is an interesting case because Hannibal Lecter is based, I think, directly on Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes. And when you get it, the difference between what I'm doing in in this work and Sherlock Holmes, who I think is the archetype for the uh, the white European detective, is that Sherlock Holmes is one, one thing, and Moriarty, I think, actually is his dark side. He is a European male who's so intelligent that if you show him a footprint and a cigarette ash and a little snip of cloth, he'll say, oh, this man was six foot four, born in Madagascar, was scarred by his mother at the age of eight with a scimitar and who walks with a limb. And, yes. and he's in the French Foreign Legion. That this is that, that white Eurocentric attitude that says we can understand the whole world via science. There's a domination of the world via science. Hannibal Lecter is also like that. And I, I like Hannibal, I like Sherlock Holmes, and I like Hannibal Lecter in the, in the way that I like superheroes or supervillains, that kind of thing. Um, but, but real sociopaths are limited in ways. They're, you know, they, their brilliance is uh, limited, I think, to flashes or the ability to make decisions in a moment, like Hannibal Lecter could, but not necessarily to be also this you know, great scientist who can take the phone apart and do, you know, that for me goes beyond a kind of reality that I think that hard-boiled fiction tries to get away from. Hard-boiled fiction tries to show you a world that you live in and how you might deal with it. The world that you live in is 1992. <laughs> the world that Easy lives in is the late 40s and the 50s. The books seem to be written from the perspective of easy writing today about that time. Is that correct, first off? And secondly, where are, where's your source material? What hmm. do you do for your research? Well, my source material is in my head. And easy, in, the, in the moment where easy is writing from is somewhere in the future of when the book happens. Maybe not as far forward as 1990. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, I was born in 1952. When I came to consciousness and could use language, I was around a lot of people who were from southern Texas and Louisiana and who lived and moved to Los Angeles. They told stories, and those stories are in my mind. The way that I see the fiction, the way I see fiction working is its language. It's understanding the language of a time rather than understanding the moments and the, and the events of that time. If you want to write history, it's fine to talk, well, this is what the cars look like and this is what the people look like and that's what they dressed like. But the, the importance of fiction is that you begin to understand people's lives at a certain moment in time from the way they interacted, from the emotion and from the use of language. And so what I'm doing is telling stories or approximations of stories that I've heard, not worrying so much about detail. Are some of the individual elements then, they're based on real stories then? Oh, yeah. A lot of them are based on real stories. Some of them even I didn't know. There's a story in Devil in a Blue Dress where there's a man who owned a pool hall and he messed around on his wife. The man got diabetes, lost both legs. The wife puts him in a bed and, with a, and every morning she gives him a bottle of whiskey and then she goes in the next room with her boyfriends and makes a lot of noise to make him upset. And I wrote this, and after I wrote it and the book was published, my father read the book, and he comes to me and he says, Walter, 
how did you know that story? And I said, what are you talking about there? He said, I knew some people just like that in Texas way before you were born. And, you know, so there's a lot of it that's just kind of going around in my head, and I'm not even aware of it. Uh, the, the three books in the series so far, I assume there will be more. There will be. Uh, we've, we've had blue, red, and white. What color? Are you and John D. McDonald? Um, we need another color? It, 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 I fell backwards into this color scheme, but I, I like it, so I, I'm not complaining. Yeah. The next one is Black Betty. The first book in the series, Devil in a Blue Dress, takes place in the late 1940s. And as I read the book, I kept thinking of books by other authors that touch on the same era from somewhat similar, somewhat different ways. And, and I'd like to mention these names to you and see how many of them uh, you might care to comment on. One is Chester Himes, whom we talked about earlier. I'm thinking particularly of, a, of his very first book, If He Hollers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Thompson, a very early book called Now and on Earth. And uh, James Elroy, a book called L.A. Confidential. Now that, that's interesting. You see, one of the things that that has happened to me uh, in the past few years in interviews is people talk to me a lot about Himes, who I read after I wrote Devil in a Blue Dress. I'm not really happy about the comparison to Himes because, in my mind, Himes and Elroy are very close in their work and in, in their in their mood and their attitude toward characters and also in their anger that the anger that comes out in the work. I'm not trying to say uh, in their lives. I don't know. You know, I can see the comparison to to them. The difference that I have uh, from all three writers, I think, is that there's it's a much more positive view. I write about the time in a way. See, easy when I read *The Long Dream* by Richard Wright, I was really taken up by it. Here's this, you know, these black people living in the deep South uh, who have all of these aspirations for a life, but they're being completely destroyed by this white ponderous structure on top of them. And when I got to the last page and the protagonist gets on a plane and goes to France, I didn't know where I was. I was it was like, what? Huh? Now, later on, I figured out a lot of black writers went to France because that's where they had freedom. But I didn't live in that kind of world, and I didn't live in that kind of thought. In my world, people came to L.A., and they lived there, and they stayed there. And if they were going to die, they were going to die there. But there's a very positive and willful view toward life in this community. And Easy has this. It's a very positive view, really. Easy buys property, invests in things. He has a lot of uh, weight on him from the past, mainly in his mind from racism. But still, he has a much more positive view. And and the people in in his world are much more enjoyable, I think. Would it be fair to say that he believes in the American dream? He wants to believe in the American Mm -hmm. dream. And whenever it, it shows out that he can't, he gets very upset. The books take place over a longer period of time than most mystery series. Uh, I think the second one, um, Red Death, takes place about three or four years after the first, and the next one three or four years after that one. Right. So that Easy's situation has changed drastically. For instance, between Red Death and White Butterfly, he's met and married Regina and had a child. Right. Right. One of the problems in the genre that I've found is that economically, it makes sense to write books about the same character. This is just a business thing. That's fine. But if you're writing a novel, something has to change. That's why people read novels. That's one of the major hooks in a novel. Something changes. Usually in a novel like this, it's 
a character change. The character understands something, realizes something that he or she didn't know before. The issue with writing about the same detective again and again, if the detective is 38 years old in each novel, let's say, or somewhere between 38 and 48, then there is no change. Or there's maybe a change in the first book, maybe in the first three, but after that, it gets boring because you've already worked that ground. And so as I get have Easy get older and older, my last book, it'll be in the 1990s. Easy will be in his 70s. And he'll be a much different person working in a much different way. He's already changed quite a bit between um, Devil in a Blue Dress. He's seems to be actually far more cynical, but also far more self-aware than he was before. And when people grow older, they learn more about themselves. They learn more about their world. They learn more about their limits. Uh, and their interests become more honed. And also their personality quirks become more set. But he, he also, however, seems to still have a certain attitude toward women that is quite disturbing. Well, Easy's trying to learn about women. One of the things that I've been doing a lot in, in the fiction, my work, is trying to deal with the relationship between men and women. In the black community, as well as the America in general, there's been a lot of conflict in, in, the, in the fiction world about the relationships between men and women. Easy is not a perfect man with women. But then again, he's not all that bad either. A lot of what happens between him and women is, is a, a complicity. Also, he loves children. And he really is committed to children in a way. It's not that he just likes them and he likes to see them run around. He's really committed to them, wants them in his life, and tries to understand. His problem with women is really his problem with America. He's afraid to reveal himself. And that's something he's beginning to learn about. In, in the first pages of the new book, I start to address how Easy's learned that you can't hide in your own house. Now, you, you mentioned that his problems with women are like his problems with America. How do you see America in the 50s and America today, and what are you saying about the relationship between them in terms of the black person? The relationship between the two times. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, in the 50s in California, because it really, I think it was true everywhere else, but California was in the forefront. There was a lot of opportunity open for black people. Opportunity with an underpinning of racism that wasn't necessarily visible or people didn't want to admit to things like uh, the army gets integrated, you know, but of course that means you go off and get killed fighting in Korea, but <laughs> the army is integrated. I think there's a time where black people had a lot of optimism in the 50s and th now that optimism has kind of fallen apart. I think the, the foreshadowing of 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 the of the destruction of the, of that optimism is in the fifties and in the sixties and forties, and I write about that in the books. Dick Lupoff, uh, I'd like to ask some questions about the second book in the series, A Red Death. This takes place, uh, as, as I recall, against the uh, the situation of red baiting that was going on, particularly right. in Los Angeles uh, in the early 1950s. And the reason I mentioned uh, James Elroy earlier is that one of his novels yeah. deals with the same theme. We seem to follow uh, the same path, Jim and I. Well, it's very strange. You're, you're both in good company, what yeah. can I say? But again, from the viewpoint of uh, the modern reader uh, to whom this is, is fairly ancient history, of course, this was you, you were just a tiny baby at the time, so you don't right. remember it firsthand. But as you mentioned earlier, 
you were told stories by people who lived through this. I think to white America, the early 50s and the stuff that was going on is a white phenomenon. It was Joe McCarthy versus Joseph Welch. Right. I have to admit that I myself was, was totally ignorant of this whole other aspect of it until I saw a red death. So would you talk about that? What was going on then? Well, to a great degree, it's, it's true that it was a white phenomenon, <clears throat> that black pe- poor black people in working class America uh, didn't have much of a connection with the one organization that would bring them into trouble with McCarthy and those are the unions. Black people were involved in the unions and there were some union leaders who had trouble. There were some people in Hollywood who had trouble. But what I was trying to do in the book was to show not so much the connection but the resonance because oppression for white people, for instance, the Jew Chaim Winsler who is the the union organizer who was oppressed in Russia, now is oppressed in America by the FBI, came to easy and said, we have the same life. My people were put in ghettos. My people were hung and burned and chased and killed. And your people are. And I see a connection there. Now, this is true. There was a connection there. And a, and a lot of uh, Jews from, from Eastern Europe came to America and fought beside black people all through the 60s uh, for that for freedom. And the thing that I was trying to do in A Red Death is show how easy came to understand that, that he... If he was going to stand with his friends, he was going to stand against America that he had all these middle-class aspirations about. And it's a very hard and heartbreaking, really, situation. Extremely hard and extremely subtle. You find yourself dealing with moral ambiguities that are profound, to say the least. Thank you. But something happened over the course of the years in terms of the black and the Jew working together. Oh, this is such an interesting thing. It's interesting for me especially because my mother is Jewish. And the way I understand it is really a double thing. One, black identity in America has a lot turned away from Europe and toward northern Africa and the continent proper. A lot of that, of course, is is Islam. And And today, in this world today, there's a a real conflict between Islam and uh, Israel, let's say. And, and I won't say the Jewish faith. It's really, it's not really, it's not that it's kind of a political thing. It's kind of a racial thing. Now, so the, for one, you have a lot of identity with, with Islam, which is against the Jews in, uh, in uh, the Middle East. And also you have Jewish, young Jewish people being raised in America, seen as white and given all of these opportunities that, there's no reason for them reason for them to think. Well, why don't black people do this? I work hard. I go to school. I do this. My parents work hard. How come you can't do this thing? And there's a moment in a Red Death where Easy and Jackson Blue are talking, where Easy says, "Well, I must be on the communist side." And he says, "No, you don't understand, Easy. You would be better off on the blacklist than you are being black because if you're on the blacklist, that means one day you could get off of it." Which is what happened with uh, the the generations, the the, fir- the ensuing generations of Jews in America, they kind of got off it, and they were, had a better life. And so there's less understanding between the two, I think. There's another continuing character which we haven't discussed, named Mofas. Ah, uh, Mofas. Can you talk about him a little bit? I really like Mofas. You see, Mofas came up. Mofas was an acronym when I worked for Mobile Oil in um, in New York. 
and I forget what the, the acronym meant. It was a mobile oil something or another, something about foreign uh, affiliates. And I, I really hated working on this thing. And so I said, one day I'm going to make a guy, Mofas, who I hate. He's really <laughs> into business. Mofas is the kind of guy who, as Easy says, if he makes money on the day he dies, he's going to die a happy man. And that's just the way he is. And the, the reason that I set up Mofas, because Mofas in A Red Death is, in a way, Easy's nemesis. He does a couple of very horrible things to Easy. But when Easy wants to kill Mofas, Mofas looks him in the eye and says, you're no better than I am. You did exactly the same thing to Chaim Winsler. And Easy realizes that it's right. And so Easy has to keep Mofas around because he's no better than Mofas. And this is where Easy's morality comes into play, that he is creating his own world, which is the thing that black people have to do in America. They have to create their own morality because they don't live by the same laws that most white people do. It's just a, it's just a fact. In in that line, you also have a lot of characters who are very, very violent, uh, killing their wives, <laughs> wives killing husbands, boyfriends beating up girlfriends. Was it that bad in L.A. in the 50s in the black community? When you live in poverty, a lot of anger arises. And when you want to get out of, out of poverty, uh, you run into conflict. These are two things that are true. And the two places that most, so the two places you're most going to run into conflict is over money, which is probably going to be with friends or people you deal with in your community, or at home with a spouse. Uh, that's just uh, the way it is. I think it's not only true for black people, it's true for white people too. The more money you have, the more likely you're able to find other ways out of these, these problems. This term, uh, the word anger, I, I keep hearing it. And it makes me think of a guest we had in the studio recently. Uh, who had done a book, uh, a book of criticism of contemporary American mass culture. And uh, he had a section on rap music and other mm -hmm. mass culture, and he was very upset about the amount of violence and rage that appears in this music. But it, my recollection is that he never addressed the question of why the violence and rage mm -hmm. is in that music. Is it the biggest problem with America, it seems to me, is that question is never asked. Uh, you, you, no one ever asked why. I, there was a book written recently, uh, A Black Man's Guide to Understanding the Black Woman by uh, a woman named Shahrazad Ali, which the black community really tried to keep from coming out. Now, I don't agree with the final arguments in this book, but the book was really about the rage of black women. That's really the, was the basis of the book. It's something very well worth talking about, I think, in the community because there is rage. Okay, well, what's that rage about? This woman said, this woman is trying to say, well, black men are completely responsible for it. Well, that's interesting. We could, we could bring that out and discuss it, but of course people don't. Rap music, you can't just say, well, don't be angry. You can't just say, well, don't be mad. You say, God, these people are very angry. I wonder what it's all about. The same, but it's the same thing with rock and roll. When In the 50s, when, when the, the middle class people listened to rock and roll, they were scared to death. This, this music is why they're talking about sex and, and violence and, and, and drugs. Oh, my God, let's get out of here. You know, I mean, I think it was even worse. Do you agree that this is complaining about a symptom? And, and certainly if we have a, a painful pimple, uh, on our nose, we're <laughs> unhappy about it. But don't we want to ask, why do I have a painful pimple on my nose, rather than simply saying, oh, this is a terrible thing? You know, and one of the things that I try to do in the books, of course, is to explain 
the rage and explain how to deal with the rage. In White Butterfly, there's a moment where Easy sees a man who's just gotten out of prison. And while he was in prison, his wife was having an affair. And the man has decided he's going to kill these people. Easy, even though he knows he's going to get in trouble for doing this, sits down and tries to talk to the man. He says, well, maybe she was doing something wrong, but she came to see you in prison every day, and she's still there for you, so you have to talk to her. And he didn't talk to her, but at least Easy tried. And that's that. the, the thing with the rage is, is that. What about the, the way that Easy and uh, Regina have a relationship where he just feels like having sex one night, and she calls it rape? Now, where does the rage play in there? Well, no, that's very interesting. There, there's a, there's a, mo there's that moment where a lot of people don't discuss this idea of of violence between husband and wife. The the violence that doesn't you know come to the level where you you beat somebody till they're bloody or whatever. But certainly, well, a lot of women are saying, "Well, but this was violence. I don't want to have sex with you, and you force me. This is rape." Easy doesn't really know how to deal with that. And the reason I talk about it is because a lot of people don't know how to deal with it. So I just wanted to bring it up as something that is worth thinking about. Easy in these books has a way of writing, which is wonderful, which, of course, is the Walter Mosley writing. But it is Easy's voice. Is Easy going to become better educated as the series progresses? Yes. And it's interesting because Easy, you know, as it is, he reads ancient Roman history. He, he loves, you know, Socrates and Plato. He, he, he's very interested in things like Marxism. He has his friend Jackson Blue, who's just a genius. And so they discuss all kinds of things. But his way of talking isn't going to change, and his way of seeing the world isn't going to change. He can talk like a white man, but he chooses to talk like a black man, at least around whites, but it seems like around everybody. Yeah, he talks like himself, and it's not even like a black man. He talks like himself. There's a thing, when you're raised as a child, you get emotional attachments to articulation, the way that you say words, the way that you articulate, the, the music in your voice. If you don't talk like that, you lose your connection with your own emotional life. And so that's how he has decided to keep his own and, and to validate his own way of speaking, which is the other thing. I think uh, Mark Twain was trying to do that in Huckleberry Finn. The first two books in the series take place in L.A. The third takes place in part in Oakland. Yes. Is this geographical growth and opening uh, a reflection of Easy's mental and, and emotional growth and opening? And is it going to continue? Is it going to wind up uh, in another city or another part of the world? Well, the Bay Area has more and more of an impact on Southern California as time goes on. So uh, I'm going to be connecting Easy. Easy is going to be involved with uh, the Black Nationalist Movement, which was going to have a lot happening in San Francisco. He's going to be involved in the Summer of Love, which is, certainly has a lot of the Bay Area in mind. Uh, I don't think I'm going to go much further than that. Sam Spade goes up to Washington and Oregon, but there's not too many black people up there. I'm really not going to have Easy do that. He's going to stay down around between L.A. and the Bay Area. It sounds like what you're developing here is uh – something quite deeper than a mystery series, which is rather a 30-year chronicle of, or 35-year, 40-year chronicle of black life in America. Yeah, black life in America, specifically in Southern California. Yeah, definitely. And your, your next book, can you talk a little about that? Oh, Black Betty. Black Betty is, uh, I just started writing it three days ago. I've been thinking about it for about a year. It's... 
I'm very excited about it. It's the the it, I'm going to get more into the relationship the of between white men and black women and that kind of internalized racism that goes on in both of them. And at the same time, I have a sub-story going on that I'm very excited about because Easy has witnessed Mouse murder somebody right around the time of White Butterfly, right after that. And Mouse has gone to prison and he's just getting out when Black Betty happens. And I'm, I'm so I get to really work more on the relationship between Easy and Mouse, and I'm very excited about that. Now, one problem I foresee is Mouse is, Mouse is the kind of guy who won't have a long life. Yeah. So eventually you're going to have to kill him off. This is, this is true. One day I think Mouse is going to have to die, but, you know, I can't imagine it. And I really, I was, one, one, it was wonderful. I was in, in Inglewood and I was at a bookstore there. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's a black bookstore in Inglewood. It's probably the only one. I forgot the name of the store, but I was uh, talking. I didn't read, but I was talking, and I said that I was thinking that one day Mouse was going to have to die. And about five or six black women got so upset. And it was really a wonderful thing, you know, that, no, you don't understand, this woman was telling me, you don't understand. Easy needs Mouse. And then she said, oh, yeah, but you wrote it. I, I guess you do know. And then she was even angrier. It was wonderful. Do you feel that, that women then, this reverts to something we were discussing <clears> earlier, <throat> are attracted to the danger and the, the, the tight-wound potential violence in Mouse rather than being attracted to Easy, who is basically a much more decent and admirable person. I think that there's a, one thing that I think black men feel a lot in America is that there's a double desire from many black women toward men, that they're going to be domestic and at home and taking care of the children, but they're also going to be dressing really, really well and they're going to be kind of like a playboy, but not going out with other women, of course, but just playboy with them. This isn't like, certainly that's an over, oversimplification, but Mouse represents somebody who is not afraid. Mouse represents somebody who will go out and stand up for what is right. And of course, you realize that you need somebody like that in the black community because the law really isn't going to protect you. Mouse is almost uh, a psychotic policeman then. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that. But, but a sociopath. He's not psychotic. He's a sociopath. He has his own set of rules. He This kind of this internal set of rules, which easy realizes that Mouse loves him and he loves Etta May. And that's true. And that's just true for him. It's just part of his psyche. Uh, for my own curiosity, what happened to Etta May between uh, Red Death and White Butterfly? And White Butterfly... Uh, Minnie is his girlfriend, and Etta May is gone. Etta May has moved down to San Diego. I had it in the book, but it just—it was just informational. Finally, so I took it out. Etta May has moved down to San Diego with her son Lamar, and she'll she'll be coming back. But you know, Mouse has a lot of girlfriends. He didn't only have Minnie; there's like three or four others, as I remember. <laughs> finally, uh, one thing it says in. Uh the end of White Butterfly in your author blurb is you're working on a screenplay of Devil in a Blue Dress. What's the story with that? I wrote the screenplay and it's kind of flawed. But I just am in, in, at the moment signing a contract with Jonathan Demme to produce, Carl Franklin to direct Devil in a Blue Dress. And Carl and I met yesterday and discussed working on the screenplay, you know, making it a better screenplay. He may end up being the writer, I'm not sure. If you had your druthers, who'd play easy? 
Ah, uh, if I had my druthers, who'd play UC? What a, what, a, what a hard question to say. I think that Denzel Washington is going to play UC, though I'm not completely sure. There are different people who would bring different things to it. For instance, Danny Glover would bl bring that blue-collar uh, attitude and also that kind of very large uh, feeling that you get about at least easy psyche. Not that I've ever explained what easy looks like. Uh, but there are, I mean, there are a lot of people who could do There are so many uh, talented black male actors today. And there's so few roles for them to play. It's kind of sad. Black Betty would follow White Butterfly in 1994. Devil in a Blue Dress became a film released in 1995. Using the screenplay discussed in the interview, it was directed by Carl Franklin and starred Denzel Washington. Mouse was played by Don Cheadle in a career breakout role. Thus far, that's the only Easy Rollins film. In 2022, Samuel L. Jackson starred in a TV miniseries titled The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, based on Walter Mosley's novel and primarily written by Walter Mosley. At present, an adaptation of his novel The Man in My Basement is in pre-production. The most recent Easy Rollins novel is Blood Grove, released in 2021. The next Easy Rollins novel, Farewell Amethystine, will be published in June 2024. You've been listening to an interview with author Walter Mosley, recorded October 25, 1992, while he was on tour for the third Easy Rollins mystery, White Butterfly. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. This was the first of five Walter Mosley interviews to date. This interview was digitized, remastered, and edited on February 10, 2024. It has not been heard in 30 years. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or richard at kpfa.org. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky radio shows on Facebook. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky. <laughs>